what I'm about to describe cannot be done with term or insurance that expires. It can only be done with permanent insurance that builds cash value. So you earn money off of the money in a policy. My husband and I had two of those policies. We we paid low premiums because we were young and healthy when we purchased them. And then the cash built up over time. So in 2016, we were able to take 40K out, start investing in real estate. Uh, we bought three properties in one year one of them being a rental in Philadelphia, our primary residence in Virginia. And then we also helped my mother-in-law purchase her condo in Florida. So I was well, you're able- You're talking to- good right now. You're saying <laughs> some good stuff. See? And, and I, and- you are now listening to the Your First Steps podcast. It's great to talk about million dollar dreams, but where do we start? How do we get there? Listen up. As you hear directly from real estate industry leaders on how they reach success in their fields. And most importantly, what were their first steps? Let's get this party started. Here's your host, Eli, the real estate guy. All right. Hey, how's it going, guys? Thank you all so much for tuning in to another episode of the Your First Steps podcast. Uh, thank you all so much for continuing to watch our episodes. And if you guys have not already, make sure you like this video if you love the information that we're providing. And also be sure to subscribe to our channel so that you're able to see all of the new items that we're presenting to you guys. So with that being said, we have an amazing, amazing guest today. Uh, we have Aquadia Escarne. Uh, and we're super, super, super excited to have her. Uh, and when you're talking about, uh, let me just kind of run some things that she has going on. So she's a writer, a speaker, she's a financial coach, a wife, a mother, life insurance professional, uh, a real estate investor that does uh, hotels and apartment syndication. She she does it all. So we're super excited to have her in. Uh, so Claudia, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. This is going to be fun. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. So uh, I found her on Instagram and I love her content because she basically puts the uh, the medicine into candy, right? She, she's very entertaining whenever she's presenting information. And so uh, once I saw some additional posts, I'm like, I've been following her for a while, but I'm like, hey, I, I got to have her up. So uh, for the folks that do not ho- uh, know who you are, uh, go ahead and introduce yourself uh, to the people. Hi, everybody. My name is Aquania Escarne. I am the creator and founder of The Purpose of Money, a platform that teaches women how to build wealth through life insurance and investing in real estate. Awesome, and all awesome. the other stuff you said, mom, wife. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Good deal. Awesome. So um, we're going to get into uh, all the life insurance and real estate and all that fun stuff. So uh, we'll do that later. But first, let's start off to your childhood on what was it like growing up? Uh, in your household. Uh, and uh, then we'll start from when you're a kid and then build our way up to what are you doing now? So what was it like in your uh, household as a kid? Well, a long time ago. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, life in my household was was great. I did have two loving parents. My dad is a retired military army vet. So he was traveling the world most of my childhood, living in Germany and San Antonio and other places before he retired. My mom, on the other hand, was also in the military, but got out 
slightly younger than my dad after seven years and we uh, lived in Georgia. So I was born and raised in Savannah. I was born in Savannah, raised in Clarkson, Stone Mountain area and mostly lived with my mom. My mom was a full-time entrepreneur. So she gave me my introduction into entrepreneurship. My mother sold everything from life insurance to ATM machines to credit card services. Okay, and, I love it. And um, majored in accounting, got a master's in accounting, and actually did uh, taxes with the IRS seasonally. So nice. she was a jack of all trades also. Uh, but I always tell people, you know, my mother also taught me what not to do in entrepreneurship. Um, she never learned how to scale her business. She never hired and she definitely didn't have coaches and other people around her to push her to do more. But I still appreciate the lessons because I learned the grit that it takes to keep food on the table and how entrepreneurship can be challenging. But I took that as motivation to do entrepreneurship differently. Gotcha. It's what, and that's what I'm doing. And then my dad was always into real estate, even in the military, maybe didn't make that much money, but always found a way to save and invest. And at one point um, had amassed several properties in Atlanta, Georgia, right before 2008. But unfortunately, uh... 2008 really hurt him and his portfolio. But he's still back at it. My dad's also an entrepreneur and a nine to five. And one day he will retire, but he's that guy who will still uh -huh. wake up almost 70 and still walks a couple miles a day. Wow. I love it. I love it. Cool. All right. Awesome. So there's a couple of things that you brought up about your parents that I thought was uh, very interesting. So uh, with your mom, you're saying that, of course, you know, hard worker really getting after it, but uh, not being able to scale uh, really uh, affected you all or affected how much she could have grown. So what about uh, her uh, did you see about her not scaling that you learned from and were like, you know, what, I'm going to uh, do this differently. So what, what did you see that was different? I definitely saw that my mom only hired me and you know how kids are. One day they really want to work because they want something. I wanted uh, a car. I wanted some outfits or clothes or things that I thought I needed. And I was a pretty good saver as well. I still am. But I didn't realize that was not the best way to do it until I became an entrepreneur myself. And I realized like mom was always tired, struggling, looking for the next check it was definitely a challenge to focus on what parts of the business to expand because she was still doing all the jobs. My mom uh -huh. did all her admin. I mean, I did her filing and typing and data entry a lot of times, but my mom uh -huh. had to go find the clients, close the clients and do it all over again, especially when... Um, she reached a point where banks, my mom used to actually sell the ATM machine. She would go to gas stations when most of them took cash and try to convince them uh, that they should be taking credit cards and they should have ATM machines for their customers. And gotcha. at that time, a lot of gas stations were like, no, we're a cash business. We'll never need cards to take transactions. You know, I'm not interested or the equipment is just more expensive than I want to spend. Will you provide the equipment? But she didn't have the capital to uh -huh. purchase equipment and give it to stores. So she got a few people to sign up and they would split the transaction fees and it would be a residual based business. You sell uh -huh. the equipment, you make an influx of cash, but then you made money off of each transaction. But then the banks got hip to it. 
And when the banks got uh, into the game, they had the capital and the machines. They were giving machines away and letting the gas stations still get a portion of the proceeds in the process. Wow. And that really messed up her business. Mm. Uh, but my mom has always been someone who wants to work for herself. She doesn't really do well with listening to others. Gotcha. Or, <laughs> and I get that fiery spirit from her. But mm. that's why. I mean, and when she sold insurance, it was for the same reason. I want to work for myself. I want to help people. But I don't want to go to a nine to five. I think I remember my mom working in an office only a few years when I was really, really young. And I only remember that because as a single mom, she used to take me to work sometime, you know, and I'd sit under her desk or I would sit in the lounge where most people ate lunch, but I'd sit there all day and read or color or do different activities. But, you know, mom didn't have a babysitter that day. So that's when you go to work with her. Right. Uh, so that's what I remember most. Gotcha. Okay, good deal. So um, uh, another thing when you're talking about the, and, and maybe this is a, a dumb question, but when you're saying ATM, do you mean like the actual box ATM or are you talking about the card readers? Uh, Both. At, at the, okay. Both. Okay, gotcha. So my mom used to sell the machines that dispense money and mm -hmm. she used to sell the credit card machines that would swipe your card, process your payments, and then transfer money from your bank to the vendor's gotcha. bank. Okay. So yeah, she used to okay. sell both. That's why I still know all the equipment. And mm -hmm. I used to even be that person. I would go places, you know how stores used to say minimum purchase of $10 before right. you could use a card. And I'd be like, right. that's illegal. That's payment discrimination. I used Is to know it? all the, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know. Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, excuse my uh, dog here. Well, no. And, uh, wants to be on the show. Right? Yeah, seriously. All right. So uh, now for your uh, dad, uh, him being in real estate, what caused him to want to be in real estate? And what did you see in that that made you want to be like, you know what, this makes sense. This is something I want to pursue. So when I was 16 years old, my dad gave me Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki as my birthday gift. And nice. he told me to read it. And I did. Mm -hmm. And so at 16, I really understood the value of being an owner and being an investor and being an employee and how those compare. And I immediately decided at 16, I didn't want to work forever. I wanted to retire early and I wanted to invest. And believe it or not, I wanted to retire early well before I'd ever heard of a FIRE movement. For those that don't know, that's financially independent, retire early. And all these other things, semi-retired and all these other things people say today, like I was in high school and I was like, yo, this sounds great. Like who wants to work forever, especially for somebody else? I'm not feeling it. So at 16, I got my first summer job at a retail location, uh, selling clothes at a literally a strip mall next to a grocery store. And I took my first paycheck, went to the bank and opened up a Roth IRA. And I said- at 16. Oh and it was gosh. funny. I remember the <laughs> bank teller being like, you know, who told you to do You're this? Right. <laughs> or where are your parents? And I'm right. like, I don't need my parents. I have a job. All I need is income. I qualify to open a Roth wow. IRA and you're going to help me do it. So she, <laughs> she, she helped me do it. Um, right. And then the rest is kind of history. I continued to put money into that account, babysitting money, 
coins that I saved throughout the year, anything I possibly could. I couldn't make consistent contributions, but when I had extra money, I did. Mm-hmm. And then when um, I want to say when I was in college, my dad just started buying properties using other people's money, his money, leveraging his credit. He got up to about 10 properties and that's when he sat me down and he was like, look, I know you're young and I was dating my husband at the time. And he's like, and you're dating. So I need to talk about what we have. So you'll get a prenup. I was like, oh, shoot. Okay. (laughs) I didn't know that's what I was headed. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. But you know, my dad is, Uh he's very straightforward. He's a man of very few words, but what he says, you're going to listen to. Right. So that's what started the conversation. And that's when I learned how extensive his portfolio was because I wasn't really asking those questions. I was Uh just kind of observing in the background, like, oh yeah, you got another house or, oh, that's cool. You got another tenant. And then when we had that conversation, I was like, oh, okay. Uh You know? And then I decided I'm going to try that when I'm ready, but I was in college and I wasn't ready in college, but Uh I did dabble with some ideas on how we could partner in college. And so, but I ended up doing real estate the way I normally recommend people do it, which is lived in the house first, Uh moved out, rented it, bought another house and then bought rentals from there. But I, I do like to get that primary residence first. Gotcha. Okay. So why that method? Well, for me, it was a way that I would know exactly what the house issues are because I've lived there and I know what to expect. But then also like knowing, hey, I can afford this house whether I live here or not because the bank basically helped me uh, confirm that I can afford it and we've lived here for a certain number of years. So we know what the issues are. But it was just an easier barrier to entry because I live in a very expensive real estate market. I'm in the Washington DC area. You Mm. really can't find what I call cheap houses here. So you save your money, you get your own house first. And then you know how it goes. Once you have a house, banks Mm. are throwing money at you. And I also had a good government job. So between good credit, good government job and real estate, a primary residence, it was easier to find money and capital and people who wanted to work with me. So a few years later, when I did want to get just a rental to be a rental, um, I was able to get capital from life insurance. We can talk about that later. Uh-huh. And then also partner with um, others who wanted to do real estate and didn't want to do it alone. Gotcha. All right. So uh, you brought up uh, insurance and I'd love to merge the two so that we can see how you're able to basically tie both of these to uh, create a path uh, to wealth. So um, let's back up to your introduction to insurance, bring it to uh, real estate, and then we'll grow from there. So uh, I'm assuming your introduction to uh, insurance was through your mom, or did you have another introduction? Yeah, that was my first introduction. But later, when I was, I lived three years in Dubai with my family, my was sent there for my job. And then my husband was working there as well. We came back home in 2016, 2015, excuse me. And I really was inspired to help people with their finances initially. I'd read an article that said most Americans don't have $500 saved for an emergency. So when they have a car accident or unexpected medical bill or they lose their job, that's what drives them to payday loans, credit cards, and debt. Uh So I said, oh, that's a shame. Like, how can I help with that? So I started a savings challenge 
in, on social media and I asked people to save with me. Um, and I had started it at the perfect timing where by the end of the year, if you just did a dollar a week, like don't break your back, but a dollar more each week, you would have more than $500 by the end of the year. So it could be used for Christmas, emergency fund or whatever you need it. And people were like, this is fun. You're really good at this. I think you should continue to do it. And I said, oh, okay. So then I just continued to talk about finances on social media. And then it was my financial advisor who was actually like, I think you should get your life insurance license because you like to talk about money. You can help people. You'll have a license. It's not as challenging as getting a series or a securities license. Uh Uh So it's like a great stepping stone to the next step. And I was like, sounds like a good idea. Right. So I went hard. I turned into a student, going to the library, studying, got my license in about four weeks. And then the rest is history because- I already knew the power of insurance. So before I sold insurance, I leveraged it for myself. So in 2016, my husband and I, we already had policies because a year before we got married, we met with a financial advisor. We picked the person we wanted to work with and she got us set up. We had insurance, we had stock, we had investments, and we were contributing to our retirement plans. So after a few years, we decided to invest in permanent life insurance. So uh, let me just be clear. What I'm about to describe cannot be done with term or insurance that expires. It can only be done with permanent insurance that builds cash value. So you earn money off of the money in a policy. My husband and I had two of those policies. We, we paid low premiums because we were young and healthy when we purchased them. And then the cash built up over time. So in 2016, we were able to take 40K out, start investing in real estate. Uh, We bought three properties in one year, one of them being a rental in Philadelphia, our primary residence in Virginia. And then we also helped my mother-in-law purchase her condo in Florida. So I was well, able talking to... good right now. You're saying some good stuff. <laughs> See? And, and, I, and, and, and I know you're, you're, you know, you're kind of going, but I want you to kind of back up a little bit. So, okay. uh, so you got the life insurance policies, but for actually first, uh, you said something that, that really stuck out to me. You met with a financial advisor before you guys got married. Absolutely. Who told y'all to do that? Me. (laughs) So you you forget, I'm the 16 year old who read a book once and then opened a retirement account. So I'm also the one who -hmm. came to the relationship with a little bit more financial experience than my husband, Mm -hmm. but it did not pass, you know, surpass me to think we need somebody, a third party, preferably to put us on the same page. Because as much as I would have loved to have been his teacher, I don't want to push on him ideas that he doesn't fully understand. And Mm. at that time, I wasn't a teacher who could teach everything to everyone. I had to learn how to adapt my teaching style to those who are receptive to it. So what I told him after he proposed was, hey, I think we should interview. We interviewed multiple financial advisors Mm. and we picked the person we wanted to work with. Um, And believe it or not, the Amex that he had actually had a special where when you set up an appointment with that company's advisor, you got like a gift card. And I always take free money. Gift cards are free money. (laughs) There you go. So 
I found a couple of advisors on my own, but then he had that opportunity. And I said, well, let's take it. Like who's, what's going to hurt us to get this gift card. So lo and behold, that's the person who we picked Uh... because she was a teacher. She put education first. She was really nice, really kind. And she spent hours. Like when I tell you, she would pull out the board in her office and she would Uh be like, I'm asking you for X, Y, and Z because when you're building a financial plan, this is why you need to do it. She broke down funds that she wanted us to invest in. She really broke it down. So for him, it helped him get up to where I was and it helped me even see how I needed to communicate on education when it came to finances too. So I always recommend couples before they blend their finances, especially Uh if they have significant differences on their history Uh to have a third party, i.e. a financial coach, financial advisor, uh, be the person who helps them blend. So it's a little easier. So I I love that. And I, so I've heard of folks uh, talking about marriage counseling uh, or, you know, making sure that you guys are able to resolve issues that you have, but to have a financial coach, I feel like that's something that, uh, have you thought about maybe even, well, you do life insurance. Have you thought about maybe partnering with a a financial coach and uh, having some type of series to where it's like, all right, we're doing this series for people that's married or thinking about getting married, like let's like go all in and just help this. Cause I feel like this is something that it, it sounds simple, but mm-hmm. I've literally never heard of somebody saying, oh, yeah, before you get married, go to a financial planner. I've, I've never yeah. heard that before. Well, uh, I definitely that's a mantra of mine. I believe in it. I think that's how you blend your finances successfully and get on the right track. But I have a course. I haven't partnered with coaches to do it, but I do have a course uh, actually relaunching it soon called The Purpose of Money Blueprint. And I do Uh, go through the steps that you need to take with your finances and how you can do it with your spouse or your partner. And I do think it's important. So you gave me some ideas. Maybe next time we talk, I'll say, yeah, look at this program. There you go. (laughs) So that that savings challenge that you uh, said, because I've seen a similar one. So did you join one or was that like an idea? that you came up with i it was my idea i Uh did research different ways to make it easy i think actually so the idea came from my credit union as far as the saving a dollar more a day it was a 52 week saving challenge but it was the simplest one now i've seen people do save 55k 10k 20k in the same Uh 52 weeks but um this one was the simplest one out there a dollar the first week two dollars the second three dollars the third and so on so the most you would ever put into your bank was 52 dollars in one week Mm -hmm. and i felt like if we try to get to 500 this is where we need to start you know gotcha but now i have clients they're a little bit above the 500 needing 500 dollars for an emergency they need a bigger emergency fund so Uh now i can do the higher challenges but I started out where people were, where the people around me were. Gotcha. I love it. And so uh, as you're interviewing for advisors, what made you think that um, not just going to the first advisor, oh, this seems good. What made you go through several advisors and say like, okay, based off of the information that we have here, this seems like the best person. What what was that decision? Yeah, uh, well, we like, looked for the person who seemed like a good fit for us. We looked for the uh-huh. person who looked like they were going to take the time to teach. 
because we weren't on the same page financially and some not someone who was just looking to sell something. So that was what I had in mind as my focus. And I knew that this person was going to be a part of my life. So I didn't want to pick somebody who annoyed me or who just didn't serve me in any way. So that's really why we went through a couple of people. But, you know, I think you have to go with what you're most comfortable with. And I didn't allow cost to be an issue. Like if somebody had a fee, I just took that as a part of their the notes. You know, this person has an annual fee and this person Uh doesn't. And this is why. Um, But asking those questions, too, because I I don't think it's always about the cost. Sometimes it's worth the cost. If the person's going to make you money, Uh then that annual fee might be worth it. But if they're just collecting a fee and you never hear from them, Mm-hmm. Mm, that's yeah, yeah. not so good you know exactly i feel you and so there's something that's been going around uh, online that i'm seeing uh, more and more people talk about so um i've always uh, heard about the idea of of course your uh, whatever you have a job you put money in your uh, into your 401k uh and as you continue to contribute you may have a roth here you may have these different accounts and all of this is for later um, and then later on, I heard about folks going in and saying, okay, yes, invest in these uh, investment vehicles and then be able to utilize uh, some of the funds that you get from there, borrow it and invest in real estate. But what's happening now is I'm seeing a lot more people say, hey, forget the 401k, forget investing in these things, start a business, make money and leverage money and credit to then invest in other vehicles that's going to give you monthly cash flow. So mm-hmm. do you feel like that's more so of what should happen? Or do you feel like there's like a a, a happy median of you can still do, do this, but also this is important? I think it depends on the person because uh-huh. I do not believe everyone is meant to be an entrepreneur and entrepreneurship is not meant for everyone. So uh-huh. if you are genuinely committed to your job, you like your job, you really think that, your job fulfills you, but you just want additional income outside of it, then by all means, get a good nine to five, maximize your uh, retirement investments, your free money from your employer, put enough to get a match, put enough to get beyond the match. Um, There are plenty of my years in the government where I maxed out my, we have a TSP, but the equivalent to a 401k. And I did that because I knew that that was a way to lower my taxable income in the moment. And then once we got a Roth option, it was a way to maximize my tax-free dollars in the future. So there's a lot of ways to leverage employee accounts that don't necessarily exist outside of that space because there are not as many investments where you can put $22,500 and be able to write off $22,500 from your taxable income, right? Gotcha, right, right. So I'm not going to knock an employer's 401k if it's a good one and you like your good job. Uh At the same time, the tax code was written to benefit business owners. Right. And it was meant to take advantage of employees. So even if you do have a nine to five, I think you should create a business. I think you should find a way to provide a good, a service or something that Uh allows you the ability to write off expenses related to your business and lower your income, taxable income in that way as well. And Uh there are a lot of freedoms that come with owning a business and they, you know, that could be the additional cash flow from whatever you sell, produce or do. Uh Um, That could also be writing off certain trips that you're going to take anyway. That could be meals that you're going to eat anyway. That could be transportation you're going to drive anyway. So there are just so many benefits to 
being a business owner. And I recognize that and I see a lot of people leveraging it on social, but I also do that in my own life, but in a realistic capacity. So uh -huh. I'm not out here renting Lamborghinis, um, gotcha. you know, but now in the weekend, I, not every weekend, you're not getting the nah. labels, <laughs> <laughs> but gotcha. I'm writing off mileage, you know, when uh -huh. I go to presentations and talk to clients and right. uh, my office space and just photo shoots and other things that are required to maintain this brand. But mm -hmm. I think that um, it's there is no right or wrong way. I think it's the way you're most comfortable. What I don't want to see is you make money from a business or a job and you don't invest any of it and you don't build uh, assets with any of it. I think that's where we kind of go wrong because you do have to have some type of delayed gratification, mm -hmm. whether it be saving for your future retirement or saving for your future empire, you're going to have to put somewhere you know right right um, so, so uh so uh you're talking about uh, individuals having businesses uh do you feel like in order for someone to have a business they need to have a passion for the business that they're starting if you wanted to survive yes okay gotcha. <laughs> because most businesses do not succeed beyond the five years right they mm -hmm. fail within the first five years so if you don't have the passion you're going to give up right but if you mm -hmm. have the passion maybe you'll put in the extra hours to find a new client or to be creative with your marketing strategy and to, to do it when you're not getting paid i mean Everybody doesn't start a business out the gate making money. Uh -huh. So you, I feel like the passion is required to even want to get to the point where you make that first profit. Gotcha. Uh, but but you can you can buy a business just for the cash flow. There are plenty of people who purchase franchises and existing businesses because they're profitable, and right. they may not give a lick about fried chicken or funeral <laughs> homes or right, you right. know. Um, so I do think you can, there are plenty of people who know how to buy a business, work a business and sell it again. People mm -hmm. flip businesses all the time, right. but I think that you're more successful when you are passionate about what you're doing. Gotcha. So uh, I have a friend of mine, uh, and his thing is he is, he wants to start a business. He know he has a desire to do something that's entrepreneurial, whether that's, uh, because it's trendy or whether it's because he actually really wants to do this, but he doesn't truly know what his passion is. Mm -hmm. So for someone who doesn't know what their passion is, but they just know that they have a desire to do something entrepreneurial, what would you advise to that person? I think that person should take on some more hobbies, read a couple of books on entrepreneurship, leadership, and different businesses and experiment. Like, mm -hmm. That sounds like a typical person who should be at workshops and challenges and see, hey, am I really interested in real estate? If I am, let me attend a real estate challenge or a real estate conference. Let me learn about all the different ways there are to invest in real estate. If none of them spark my attention long enough to dig deeper, that's not my thing. Uh -huh. But what if you're like, I want to be behind an online business where I don't have to show my face, but I'm selling a product or someone else's product that people need. And that, and that's my lane Then make that your space. I think people just assume you have to be the face of the business or you have to be out there hustling, grinding, but we already know that's not true. 2020 mm -hmm. people were sitting in their homes making money and it mm -hmm. was mostly from online businesses. And I'm, right. you may not have known who you were buying those products from. Right. Let's be right. real. Right. Mm -hmm. So you can be 
a behind the scenes, never show your face business owner. The key uh -huh. is knowing your niche and filling a demand, right? Every business that's successful is filling a need for someone else. Otherwise, you go out of business. So gotcha. I would experiment. I would read. I think reading led me to a lot of ideas that I never thought about. But then you have to strategically put your money behind the ones that you're most interested in and give it a shot. I mean, I didn't succeed at real estate the first time out the gate. I had a rental that started off strong and then ended in an eviction. So not everything is going to be roses. But uh -huh. when you have the eviction, I didn't give up. Like I could have given, I could have been like, rentals suck. I yeah. hate this. Realist, you know, I could have left and said, I didn't get into, which is true. When I had to evict my first tenant, I was devastated personally and mentally, because I was like, I didn't get into real estate investing to kick people out of their homes. I got into oh. it to provide safe, provide a safe and affordable housing. Right. I wanted to provide home ownership. I had even written a thesis. Like if my tenant wants to buy the house, I will sell it to them. And believe it or not, that tenant said they wanted to buy my house until they uh, couldn't pay the rent. Right. Uh, so uh, Sometimes it starts out great and then it goes bad. But when that happened, I didn't say, oh, I'm giving up. This is not what I thought real estate investing was going to be. This is not what they say on social media. I give up. No, mm -hmm. I just sold that house to another investor, got out of it, got my money, held on to it and said, what other way can I be in real estate and not do that? But it taught me something. It took me two years to learn. I don't like toilets and tenants. I don't want to deal with that. But I do like real estate. I think real estate helps you appreciate your money a lot faster than certain other things. Uh -huh. And real estate is something that's going to consistently be valuable because land is finite. Housing is limited. Everybody needs a place to live. So for me, I was like, okay, I want to be in real estate, but maybe I don't do one-off rentals. Uh -huh. Let me think bigger. So that's when I got into hotel ownership and multifamily syndications because now I'm still providing we're gonna get to that we're gonna get to that a little bit yeah uh but uh, <laughs> before you moved on to that I wanted to talk about uh so basically doing one unit at a time um have you considered using a property manager to handle those issues because of course whenever folks get rentals the first thing that they think about is I don't want to get called about a toilet at two o'clock in the morning but uh has using a property manager been an option for you? And why did you or why did you not uh, decide to use them? Always had a property manager. Some of them are better than others. Interview several property managers. That's my advice. Mm. And I still don't prefer rentals. I still have a rental. It has a property manager and it they don't they don't call me and I love mm -hmm. it. Um, but I had another property that was a headache, even with the property manager. That's why they got mm. fired. And then there you go. when right I hired so. another one, I learned a lot. So here's my advice. If you are going to get a property manager, which I did because that property was out of state and I was not going to be up and down the road in the middle of the night, uh, I think you should interview them. I think you should interview property managers. You should understand what their capacity is and what they are willing to do and not do for you. Like mm -hmm. had I done that before I hired the person I hired, I would have known like they're not going to do any setup before I had a tenant. I didn't know that. So uh -huh. I get this property. I'm trying to find contractors. I'm trying to get it ready for a tenant. And I needed somebody to turn the water on 
And they were like, oh, you got to come and do that in person in Philly. What? You can't do it for me? Yeah, but you don't have a tenant yet. <laughs> so basically, y'all yeah, not to. getting paid yet. So you don't want me to you don't want me to pay you to do something because your your only way of making money is if I have a tenant. Okay, cool. I should have wow. got there. I should have called their their card then, but mm -hmm. I, I I mistakenly used them for another year before I got my life together. But <laughs> after that experience of I don't do this, but I do this and I won't do this until I have that. I said, you know what? This is too much work. Why did I have a property manager if I'm still going to do all the work? So the second time around when they got fired <laughs> was looking for a company, not a small company, but a medium sized company that had a team to handle the things. They had a lawyer to handle evictions. They had a team to do your general contracting work before a tenant moved in. They had um, on-demand realtors when you were ready to sell. Uh... And they had investment opportunities because they catered to real estate investors. So we would see deals all the time because now they are the plug for local deals before they hit the market. Okay, oh. hold, hold on, hold on, hold on. All right, <laughs> you're bringing up some good stuff. I Okay, I'll back up a little bit. Um, I'm going to ask you what questions to ask to these okay. um, uh, property managers, but I did not think about a property management company also being a plug to uh, deals. I've heard of people say reach out to property managers because they may have folks that they're working with, but having agents on staff, that are just constantly feeding you deals because they're in the know. Uh, explain that. Explain the importance mm -hmm. of, of of that and how that works. Well, the first property I got out of state was a off the market before um, anybody knew about it property. It was an estate sale, exact to mm. be exact. So what that means is the guy who lived there for 20 plus years passed away Children inherited the house, had no desire to keep it, and they were happy to take my cash. So they were mm -hmm. motivated sellers, and they closed in less than 10 days. Easiest thing ever. The hard part came after when I had to fix it up, and I had this not-so-helpful property manager. Right. But when I was interviewing for property managers to replace them, that's when I was like, I need to know. Do you do these things? And I'll give you questions. So because I'd had someone who refused to do any work before I had a tenant, what do you think the first question was? Do you do any work on the property before there's a tenant? If so, what is the fee structure for that? Do you have someone on staff who can go out to do emergency repairs or do you have to find contractors as needed? Uh -huh. Do you have a list of... um? like a duty schedule, a 24 hour hotline, because my first property manager, you had to call them during the day between eight 30 and five. And oh you know, when gosh. all my issues happen <laughs> after <Okay>. five, <laughs> exactly. exactly, okay. And right, can't right. be nowhere to be found. And you're right. like, y'all don't have a duty line. You don't have somebody who takes turns answering the phone after hours. Okay, bet. That's my next question, you know? Mm -hmm. So those were the things. But I asked that question because I had such a bad experience the first time around. And I was like, this is not going to work. 
Do you help with evictions? Oh yeah, we refer you to this list of attorneys. Choose one and they will take care of everything for you. You know, that type of bench. I'm not saying you can't work with a service that's one person or a small team because they might do all the legwork and be beneficial to you as well. But as someone who lived three hours away, I needed as much full service as possible. So that's what I went for the second time around because I knew I didn't want to be up and down the road to handle things in person that I didn't need to be there to handle. Gotcha. So, okay. You just gave a lot of fire uh, just then. So (laughs) I, I definitely appreciate that. So, um, so you, you asked those questions, uh, and from there, uh, you acquired that property that was out of state, that was in the state sale. So that property, did you first reach out to property owners to find that, or a property uh, managers to find that? Or how, no. how did that information come about? Yes. Yeah. Funny, I was at work having lunch with a girlfriend, and I asked her, you know, what was she doing for the weekend? And she said she was going to Philly. And I said, man, you go to Philly a lot. And isn't it expensive? And she said, no, because we bought a house up there. And I was like, why would you do that? Mind you, I live in D.C. So I'm like, you live in D.C. Why would you buy a house in Philly? Like, that's not a vacation spot, right? (laughs) (laughs) Gotcha. No sense of Philly people. They're they're good people. No offense to Philly. Like, I will drive up there for some good food and good time. But it's it's not a beach. It's not. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm So she said, because like the houses up there, you can get a really inexpensive house and pay less a month for a mortgage than for a hotel room. And I said, what? Tell me more. So she was like, we got a house for like less than $50,000. She said, my mortgage is $300 a month. And it's like three bedrooms, basement, main level upstairs. I'm like, huh? Wow. That's crazy. Uh. I don't believe you. I, I told her, I was like, I don't believe you. She was like, talk to my realtor. So uh. she gave me her realtor, shout out to David Foster. Um, And he was amazing. I called him. I said, look, I'm an investor. I'm looking for properties. And I was, I did the opportunity with my cousin. So he said, great, come up here on this day. I'm gonna have a few properties for us to look at. And we're going to start the process. Got up there, looked at five properties in one day. One of them happened to be the estate sale, put in an offer the same day, closed on it 10 days later. So there's always these opportunities, but I use my network. I just, Mm -hmm. that's what I tell people. People who want to invest in real estate, they're like, I don't know how to get started. I said, tell people you want to invest in real estate. You'd be surprised how much you learn by speaking out into the world what you want to do. Because I just asked a question that led to a realtor that led to a business. So so I, I love that. And that's one of the things that I also tell folks um, about getting deals and just really putting yourself out there. Because for whatever reason, uh, there are, I'm seeing it less and less now, but I did see a lot of folks that they're like, you know what, don't let people know what you're doing because they're going to do whatever, or they're going to, you know, try to stop you or they're going to discourage you or whatever. But my thing was for years, I would go out. Uh, so I'll tell you where this started from. This started in 20, uh, six, 2015, 2016, uh, is when I first got introduced to, uh, Jay Morrison. Um, some people love him, some people hate him, whatever, but that's when I got uh, introduced to him. So 
with that, one of the things that you said was you have to constantly let people know what you're doing. And if you just said it once, you can't just say, oh, well, I told you I did real estate two years ago. Why did you give this deal to the other person? It's like, you forgot what you ate this morning. You always say, oh yeah, I completely forgot that she was in this. So by constantly going in every day, you're posting about a deal that you're doing. You're posting about this, you're posting about that. You're talking to folks on the phone, oh, what's going on? Oh, blah, blah bring in real estate. And once you're intentional, passing your cards out when you're at the gas station, like whatever it is, uh, you'll find yourself in situations to where uh, it may not pay off immediately, but years later, you'll start getting random calls of like, hey, Eli, are you still a real estate investor? Hey, do you still do this or do you still do that? Ah, perfect. I have the perfect situation for you. And just like how you're explaining, you brought it up, you put it out there and boom, this happens. So I, I think it's great. Uh, that you said that. So when it comes to um, starting off with your sphere of influence uh, and letting them know, uh, so let's just say it's you know, a regular person. They don't have real estate experience. They want to get started. Uh, aside from just saying, hey, to your best friend, like, hey, I want to get into real estate. What are some other things you would recommend they do? I feel like like the the quickest path, the best path to actually get into a deal. So what would you recommend them do first? So first, figure out what type of real estate you want to do because mm -hmm. there's wholesaling, there's rentals, there's buy and holding, there's uh, commercial real estate. Um, and some people don't even know that much. And I know there's even more because you can do land, right? Mm -hmm. I've had people on my podcast talk about flipping land and um, the importance of raw land, not even developed land. So I think doing your research, getting those books, going to those workshops and figuring out what really interests you and then narrowing in on that is mm -hmm. what I would do first. Um, I'm also someone who came to the table with capital. So I had options. There are others who are like, I don't have any money or I want to use other people's money. And I, and I had to tell someone today, I was like, okay, using other people's money is great, but sometimes other people want to see that you've successfully done something or raised someone's money to mm -hmm. do something before they're going to give you their money. So you can't just say, I'm just going to use other people's money. That doesn't work. I've never given right. somebody money off just faith. Like, oh, right. you look like a nice person. <laughs> right. <laughs> you right, look like right. a nice person. Let me give you my life savings. So, um, <laughs> exactly. So exactly. I, I think education mm -hmm. is key. And if you can get a mentor in the space, even better. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I have to preface this by saying, please don't get upset if a mentor doesn't want to mentor you for free, because there are some mentors out there, their time is valuable, and they're not going to mentor you for free because they want to know you're serious. Right. At the same time, do your due diligence. Don't hire every coach you see just because they say they're a coach, because if they're really not and they don't help you, you've wasted money. So I think there's a fine line, right? But you right. can do your research. You can follow people on Instagram. You can listen to podcasts like Bigger Pockets. You can do all that stuff for free and okay. you can get a sense of what type of real estate you want to pursue first. And gotcha. I think in the meantime, get your finances in order because obviously the better you are financially, the better it can be for you to get into the door. But of course, there are some people out there who've been able to leverage other people's credit, partnering with someone who has good credit if they don't, or using other people's funding and they've still been successful in real estate. Gotcha. I love it. I love it. And something that I just recently posted, uh, it was explaining how it's important to create an atmosphere around you to where you can absorb this information. And so 
the algorithm of different social media platforms is a great example of that to where if you just start being intentional of looking up real estate, looking up how to wholesale, looking up all these different investment strategies, all of a sudden YouTube or Facebook or Instagram is going to be like, oh, this is what you like? All right, let me go ahead and just start feeding you more. And I realized once I started doing that and I stopped uh, trying to look up basketball highlights uh, and I stopped looking up certain things. And sometimes I would even see something that catch my eye and I'm like, you like, don't click on it because you're going to start seeing a lot more of that. Just click on this one instead. And so I did that. And, and this is something that I'm starting to incorporate recently to where it's like, I'm intentionally like, Hey, motivational speeches, um, learning about business, entrepreneurship, real estate. And if you see somebody ducking on somebody, do not click on it. It's, it's hard. <laughs> but I, even though sometimes I click out, like, I got to see this one. Okay. And then after that, I, I go to the next one. But uh, going into talking about different real estate uh, strategies and um, different uh, things that you're doing in real estate, um, you're investing in hotels and in the multifamily. So I start with the hotel. So what made you, uh, and I actually did a podcast with someone recently who's a hotel developer uh, here in Houston. Uh, so What's what made name? you, uh, his name is uh, Kofi Minta. Okay. Uh, yeah, he's um, on Instagram. I think it's, uh, I don't know what it is on Instagram, but his name is Kofi. Uh, you guys, by the time you see this, his episode is already out. So you guys can look him up. Uh, but uh, I think it was like hotel development, man, or Mr. Hotel development, but whatever. He's a great guy. Um, but what brought you to, uh, investing in hotels? Cause that's something that I feel whenever people think of hotels, you don't think of, and in the space that I'm in, typically you typically go towards the apartments. You don't go for hotels. So what attract you to hotels? Honestly, it was because I couldn't get into a, a apartment opportunity. So in 2020, um, the government had this really sweet opportunity where you could take money out of retirement accounts and have either the, the three year plus period to pay it back, no, no penalties or um, to do a withdrawal. And so I am an opportunist. I saw an opportunity and I took it. Mm -hmm. um, but I did not go spend the retirement money in the world and take uh -huh. on whatever consequence that would, would be. I flipped it into a solo 401k. So for those who don't know, if you have a business, you're an entrepreneur, you can have a solo 401k. That's a retirement account for entrepreneurs. And it actually allows you to put more money in it than a traditional employer's account. Interesting. So, how, how much more? Um, up to 67,000 a year now, I believe, gotcha. but here's the thing that's total retirement contributions for the year. So if you do have a nine to five and a business 67 is the total you can do. So if you're doing 20,000 at your employer, then you can only do 47,000 on your solo 401k. So you don't exceed the max, but it, gotcha. if you're a full-time entrepreneur, this is like a lot of money from your business revenue that you can deduct from your taxes because you're contributing uh, to your future. So at the time, oh, though, in, hold in, on, hold on. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You just said some stuff. I'm loving it. <laughs> it is blowing my mind. Okay. So I'm just thinking about, okay, you got this all 401k and how soon before you can borrow from this to invest in other projects? Oh, I didn't say I borrowed, but you can well, borrow from them. Yeah. So, mm. here's the, so here's how they work. Let me start mm. here. 
So let me finish my story about how I flipped it. So okay, I took okay. money out of an employer retirement account in 2020 because of the COVID rule that allowed you to do it. And then I put it back into another retirement account, the solo 401k. So now the IRS, even if they wanted to, they can't come after me because I did a transfer between retirement accounts, which Uh is totally legit. Then because a solo 401k is managed by you, they have different kinds. Some of them Uh you can invest in in stock or mutual funds, but others, the one I have, you put wherever you want, including real estate. So you have to put it somewhere because if you don't, it's a checking account. It's a glorified checking account. It has money in it. You can write checks off of it. But if you're not investing that money into a deal, it doesn't make money for you. So it's not like your employer account where I made a contribution. And if I break up today, I might make money because of stock market, right? It's invested in stock market. A solo 401k or the one I have, there is nothing in it. You have to put your money in something, but it's operates like a real checking account and where you can literally do wire transfers. So I put money into the solo 401k and then I waited. So I took advantage of the opportunity to get money out, but then I waited because I didn't have a deal. And the people that I thought I would do a deal with kept telling me like, we're hoping it's coming. We're looking for opportunities. But in 2020, multifamily syndications were so hard to come by or at least profitable ones uh-huh. because they were overpriced or they were overvalued and it just wasn't adding up. So I almost was like, what am I going to do? I've taken this money out. It's not doing anything right now. I better find something quick or I'm losing money, right? Uh I'm not Uh making interest in my retirement account. And now this one is just sitting there. So believe it or not, I met um, through another internet bestie friend that I never met in real life, reached out to me and was like, Hey, I think you would be a good host for this conference on generational wealth. Would you like to be a facilitator? I was like, sure. And so when I said yes to that, he introduced me to the other organizers of the conference who happened to be Davon Reeves and Jessica Myers of Epic Collective. We talked and I found out they do hotel investing, which I hadn't heard of before that. So I was like, that's interesting. So just like you, I said, hey, will you be on my podcast? So a couple of months after the conference, I wanted to keep in touch because I said, these are dope women. I want to keep in touch with them. So I'm going to foster a real relationship. So it started out with, hey, will you be on my podcast? And then it turned into um, a great conversation on the show about how to invest in real estate. So check out the Purpose of Money episode 26 if you want to hear for yourself. It's still one of my most listened to episodes where they break down investing as a group and equity and doing things collectively. Uh So a month later, I am uh, super busy and I missed the email. They sent an email. I liked them so much. I got on their email list. That's Uh what friends do, right? Right. Missed the email. So this is why I say God did it. God is the reason I did my first hotel because the second time they sent the email, I didn't miss it. I saw it. I said, hmm, Hilton Hilton investment opportunity. Hmm. So I opened it. I said, babe, what do you think about investing in a hotel? Cause there's this Hilton home two suites in Oklahoma, Oklahoma. I'm like, yes, Oklahoma <laughs> looked at the numbers, talked it over with my husband, sent it to someone else to kind of do some due diligence. Everything checked out. Everything made sense. Called 
Davon up, I think, and was like, we want to do this. She was like, what? Really? I'm like, yeah, it makes sense. Sounds good. I got this money sitting here. I think we should do it. We closed four weeks later. It was really that simple. And I um, wow. I told other people about it. So I'm a big mouth in that. When I see a good opportunity, I don't keep it to myself. So I got a soror. I got a cousin, the same cousin who did the Philly property with me. She came in on the hotel. Um, and the rest is history. We partnered with another group of investors. We um, still own the property. In COVID, we got it at a deep discount. Now it is more profitable. And, the, and that was the beginning. That's how it started. Yeah. So the hotel investing process. All right. What is that? What did that look like for you on your end um, when it came to one receiving uh, the information? I know you received it, analyze it, send it to somebody to look at, mm -hmm. but kind of walk everybody through who's never invested in a hotel like mm -hmm. myself. What, what does that look like? And so what is a good return? Yeah. So the first thing is you got to be in the circles where these deals are talked about because they're not advertised on social media. They're not going to be posted on a billboard. They're not going to be, sometimes they're on a website, but the ability to collaborate with the group of people who did it is not. And the mm -hmm. reason is because the SEC doesn't like less educated or not as wealthy people to give you their last dollars to do these deals. So it's very particular as to the criteria to be able to see the deal, let alone invest in it. Uh -huh. So let me explain that a little bit. So in order to invest in some of these deals, they may have a requirement that you are a non-accredited investor, but you have some connection to the other people in the deal, uh -huh. or they have to be an accredited investor. Otherwise you can't be in a deal. So let me explain what an accredited investor is. So accredited investor is someone who either um, has a million dollars in net worth, not including their primary residence. So if you only own one home and it's fully paid off, it's not included. So you have to have a million in other assets like stock market, real estate, uh, gold, whatever, but it can't be your home. Or you are a married couple who makes $300,000 a year last year, this year, and expected to do it again next year. Or you're single and you make $200,000 a year last year, this year, and expect to do it in the future. So as a result of your income or your net worth, you are now considered a more educated investor who can take on more risk, okay? So if you meet that criteria, those two criteria, because they were adjusted under President Obama to actually include more people, then okay. you're an accredited investor. And then as such, you can see these deals. You still have to be in the circles where they're shared, but okay. you can participate, you can invest. But some deals have this thing where they're like, you can take 35 non-accredited investors. So that's someone who doesn't meet that criteria, but they have, they know the person who's doing the deal. They know someone else in the deal. So they have like a six degrees of separation kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And therefore they will let them come into the opportunity, even if they don't have the net worth uh -huh. or the income. Uh -huh. So I was able to do it because I'm an accredited investor, but I brought in other people who weren't because that deal allowed 30 up to 35 non-accredited investors. Gotcha. And that's the SEC rule of, of 35 or was that the group rule? Yeah, no, that's, that's the standard. I think that's, gotcha. uh, that's what it is right now. I haven't seen it ever be higher than 35. Gotcha. So that's hey, the first that, thing. Uh, sorry, real quick. What was the number you said for the couple? 
Uh, 200K for a couple, 300K, 300K for a couple, 200K for a single person. Gotcha. A year. Right, cool. gotcha. Um, And so that's the first thing. Second mm-hmm. thing is, so when you see, in our, first you're in the circles, then you see the deal, then you determine, are you eligible? And so some people don't want to deal with non-accredited investors. It is more work on the invest, on the person who does the deal side, they have more paperwork to do. So some people are like, I only want accredited investors. Um, But once you determine if you're qualified, then the next thing is, what is the minimum to invest? Uh Sometimes it's 25,000, sometimes it's 100,000, sometimes it's a million. It depends on the deal. So you got to figure out, can I meet that requirement? Can I make, can I do 25K on my own or do I need to partner with someone? How am I going to come up with this money? Uh The next thing you need to do is review the opportunity. So um, a lot of times, especially in the hotel space, because it's not as popular or sexy or well-known as some other ways of investing, um, a lot of investors will have a webinar or some opportunity where you can actually ask questions about the deal. So they're going to provide you a live or pre-recorded opportunity to see who's doing the deal, talk about the deal. Um, if they don't offer this, please be very cautious in, about investing in the deal, unless it's on a credible platform like Fundraise or something like that, where it's grouped, right? And it's already been vetted. But that happens next. Like the, we call it a general partner. So the general partner is the person who finds the deal and everyone who invests in it is called a limited partner. So you have limited power over decisions. That's what I, the best way to think about it. But if you're a limited partner, you're an investor, you've figured out you qualify, you've been in the right group to learn about it. You know what you can afford to invest and you decide if you're going to invest based on the information received. So you will have a prospectus that gives you an idea of what they think is going to cost to acquire the property, what it's going to cost to renovate if they're necessary, What are the comps in the area? So just like you look at homes near Uh another home you're buying, you can look Uh at hotels and you don't look at just any hotels. You have to look at similar hotels, just like houses. Uh So don't put a four seasons and try to compare it to a home to suites because a suites hotel is a limited service. A four seasons is a luxury, right? So you only want to compare similar hotels to similar hotels. You want to look at the cash flow. You want to look at the business itself because when you purchase a hotel, you are purchasing land and you're purchasing a business. Uh That hotel has nightly rates. They have restaurants, they have stores, they have laundromats sometimes. All of that generates revenue. You want to know how well is that revenue doing? Uh And so your proposal or in your webinar, the general partner should be explaining all of this down to why they're raising so much money. Because a lot of times they're not just raising money for a down payment. They're raising money for renovations. They're raising money to pay for the property manager. They're raising money to pay for the first year of the mortgage. So how much you contribute to a deal and how much the minimum is, is normally depending on that number. If they need 3.5 million to close and they want to get as little investors as possible, they might say 100,000 is the barrier to entry, right? Because uh-huh. they don't want to deal with a gazillion investors. Right. But if you need a million, then you might say, I'll take 25,000. Gotcha. So, so the so the general partner determines who they want to work with as far as exclusivity. 
if they wanted to be more exclusive, that buy-in is going to be higher. It's just how it goes. Yeah. So uh, you're saying how you're, you have to know what they're raising money for. Mm -hmm. So is there something that is like a red flag uh, if they're raising money for a particular thing? Like, oh, you guys need that much capital for that? I don't want to mm. participate because you should, you should already have that. Or I no. guess we're taking that. I mean, you definitely can ask their hotel experience. So ideally you want someone who's been in the hotel space before, if not in the hotel working, at least owned it before or did a deal with someone else before. Mm -hmm. If everybody on a deal has never done it before, run. <laughs> Cause that's, <laughs> that's just, I mean, it, they might be wonderful people, yeah. but that's just not the space to play around with all beginners. I, mm -hmm. and even me, like, the deal that I did, my first deal was actually Davon and Jessica's first deal, but Davon has over 15 years of experience in hotels. She has managed hotel assets before. She has been on the acquisition side before. So her getting her own hotel was like the next step, right? Gotcha. But if she had said to me, I woke up this morning, I want to own a hotel. Right. No. You know? <laughs> Not That's with my money. She's passionate yeah. this morning. I'm glad for you. <laughs> well, then you need to partner, which she now definitely has the network to partner mm -hmm. with other people who have been in for a while because- mm -hmm. That's the kind of experience you're going to need because it's a lot to get approved. It's it's like you think buying a house is hard. Buying a hotel is even harder because when you buy a franchise, which I recommend, I'm, I'm not going to buy, we call it a flag. So I don't want to buy mom and pop's motel in because mm -hmm. I'm not going to run mom and pop's hotel in and I'm not going to hustle like mom and pop. I don't have anything against people who do that. Those families make a lot of money because they basically do all the labor or hire it out. But that's not the scalable way to do it. And that's not what I want to do, right? So as such, I'm going to go for the franchise that has a brand that people recognize and respect and are probably going to book my hotel from a website and never have met me, right? So oh. I go for a Hilton because Hilton has a website. They have an honors program. They have people who will book because they have loyalty. They have standards that you have to maintain. So people want to know what they're getting at. So Home two suites, they'll be like, oh, I, I love home two suites because I travel with my family. We're a bigger family. They give us more space. They give me little kitchens. They give me a fridge. This is perfect. So I okay. intentionally chose what we call a limited service hotel because I knew road trip and it's on the highway. So location is key, even in hotels. We're mm -hmm. right off the highway. We're near restaurants and we have good sized rooms for extended stays. So what is most of our business? Road trippers, contractors developing the city um, and who stay at 60 nights or more. Those uh, are That's like gravy money, long-term contracts, always great. But that's the kind of things you want to look for because it's not, it's not saying there's not money to be made by getting a Four Seasons, but I just want people to know, like I stay at a Four Seasons, but I will buy a, a home two suites uh, because- that is a more money cash flow generating property than a five star hotel in the middle of COVID. Gotcha. Right? Gotcha. I love it. I love uh -huh. it. Okay. And you're talking about the mom and pop uh hotels. Uh is it possible to take those and just convert them into like a Hilton or something? But I guess there's certain specs. Yeah. 
there are certain specs you have to get approval. There is a fee and you have to be very strategic because some of these application fees could be $100,000 just to oh. ask permission <laughs> for Marriott to Goodness. turn that mom and pop into a Marriott. So you have to be strategic and you have to know what those brands are looking for. And they are picky too. Like I don't own a Marriott yet. It is mm -hmm. on my wish list, but I don't own a Marriott yet because they don't let you own until you've owned a certain number of properties and shown experience to own them because mm -hmm. they have brand standards that are up here. And they're like, until you have done it three, two times, don't talk to us. Right. Oh, I but like that. Okay. Okay. Choice Hotel. Choice Hotel. Don't sleep mm -hmm. on it. Choice Hotel is your quality in um, Camp Canberra. They're good because they have very proactive programs to encourage more minority and people of color hotel owners. So mm. they have these incentive programs where if you purchase one of their properties, they will literally give you money per key. So in, you know, in real estate, you have doors. Uh -huh. Well, in a hotel, you have keys. So okay. if you have an 85 room hotel, that's 85 keys. When you're buying a choice hotel and you're fit the the criteria for their, their um, program where they're encouraging more minority owners, more women owners. And you say to them, Hey, I need your help to purchase this property, but I'm going to do my best to make it work and be successful. They'll say, okay, we'll offer you a thousand dollars a key. So they, you negotiate what the incentive is, but they have uh -huh. a certain amount they can give you. And then you negotiate that amount. And so when you close, you get 85, let's say $85,000 for an 85 room hotel at $1,000 a room. So that then becomes money that you can use to renovate the hotel. You uh -huh. can use to hire staff. You can use, you know, they have, it's, they have their rules on how uh -huh. you can spend it, but it's to incentivize you to get it. So even then I'm like, okay, I want to own a choice hotel. I right, want to stay right. at a Four Seasons. <laughs> so. I feel you. I love it. I love it. And so um, I know with uh, government contracts, there are certain certifications you have to get in order to be considered a, uh, a minority business, a woman-owned business. Is that the same for hotels to where you're going into these programs? Or is it like a, obviously you're a minority and a woman, no need so for So that's a good question. And that, it at yes and no. So okay. I will say this disclaimer. I've never been a sponsor or a general partner on a deal yet. That's my next step. I've always been a limited partner, but I've taken a lot of interest in this topic and I have really picked the brains of the people around me so that I know what's entailed. So the reason I say it depends is because when you do hotel ownership, when you acquire a hotel and you buy it and you do own it, you can also pursue SBA loans just like other minorities and small businesses would do. And so there are particular types of loans that you qualify for by default because you meet the criteria of a small business owner. So that the, the criteria is there. You still have to meet it, but sometimes you can do it through SBA or SBA loans. And that's what you use to purchase the hotel. Gotcha. Gotcha. I love it. All right. So, um, we kind of went off of the questions I had because you, you you took me on a trip and I and I, I loved it. All right, and so uh, going back to um, the idea of incorporating insurance with the the real estate. Actually, let me back up. Hotel uh, the multifamily because you're also doing that 
with the mm-hmm. syndications. Mm-hmm. Um, and you did the hotels first, and then you did the syndications. So what brought that opportunity about? 2021 was a better year for everybody. So gotcha. um, the right opportunity came along, the cash was there. And I, again, I must be interviewing some bomb podcast episode <laughs> <laughs> uh, guests because I interviewed a guest on my podcast after I, one of my friends successfully closed on something in 2020. And I was so shocked. I was like, how did you find this opportunity? 2020 sucked. And she was like, I use Vanessa. So then I had Vanessa on my show. She's a physician, actually. She's a uh, doctor by day and a real estate investor by night. And she has land, multifamily syndications, mobile homes, everything. So she told me why she got into real estate because she felt like as a physician, she made a lot of money, but it just wasn't growing the way she wanted to in 401ks. Uh-huh. So she started investing in real estate and multifamily and being a general partner on multifamily deals just has like a really good return. So when she had an opportunity that I she, I got on her email list, keyword, all my opportunities came from an email. So get on my email list because I share opportunities on my email list. Love it. Um, I saw it and was like, oh, this looks pretty dope. It's in Florida. It's near Universal Studios. It's in a growing, developing area. Um, tons of jobs are coming to the area. It was already at a high occupancy and it was a motivated seller like that. The buy, the builder built it, but never wanted to keep it. So when they were done and they got it up to 96% occupancy, they were ready to sell. So they were super Mm. motivated. And then the terms were really good. So I I forgot to mention this before, but like I personally, when I put in money, I want to double or triple it by the time we sell. So these provide cash flow during ownership, but then you get a large lump sum of cash when you sell it because when they sell they take the profits they divide it amongst all the equity holders so i didn't need the money today i wasn't looking to spend it today and i could afford for it to double or triple much faster than it would in a bank in three to five years so i said why not let's do it um and so that's what i did and the apartment syndication is actually even nicer than hotels in that People always need a place to live. People don't always need to travel. Uh So um, they definitely had consistent um, monthly cash flow from the apartment syndication, whereas the hotels tend to pay out quarterly. So that's a major difference. Um, But they have different profitability. Like a hotel can change its rates every night. So you can have high seasons where you make a lot of money because it's a festival going on. But apartments, you can't really raise the rent until people move out. So there's that like lag in being able to raise value, but right. they've been good. They've both been good. Gotcha. And so with that apartment, uh, was it a value add opportunity or was it just at a rate that it just made sense to where they left some meat on the bone for y'all to make some money? Yeah. So normally people will go into what we call A, B, or C, or D property. So mm-hmm. just like in grade school, you want an A, right? You want to be an A. But the value normally comes in if you purchase something at the C or the B level, and then you do renovations and you get it to a higher level or the next Uh level. I will be honest, for my first multifamily, I really wanted to start with no issues. So I got an A property, which Uh because it was just built, the builder just built it. It had state-of-the-art amenities, and it was really just a great uh, price. But it didn't have a lot of value add because it didn't need renovation. So all we could really do was 
raise the rents, which we knew they were already under the rents in the area because the builder was not in it to get the most money from tenants. Uh So we saw that as an opportunity to, as the leases turned over, raise the rent. Plus we're in an area that's growing. Publix was coming in. So we was like, yeah, this is good. Schools were good. Median income, a hundred thousand, you know, and people were not buying homes because they couldn't afford it. So it was like trifecta. Um, But I would say I do know some people who will buy older properties that there might be a C. They'll do renovations to get it to a B. But with the renovations, they now can charge more rent because they've done some work to the property. So um, I think that's how you can think about it. Um, You are still taking on your own risk. These are private investments. So they Mm -hmm. do have the possibility to fail. Uh, But so far they're doing well. But I just want people to know that because there are some that they never get to the level they thought they would. They do the renovations and they still can't rent it, you know, or it's difficult to sell. So I do have one friend who lost money in a multifamily. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And so the person that developed this uh, multifamily or the company or, or the group that did this, the whole purpose of building this multifamily was to eventually sell uh, yeah. or to, okay, God, how long so, did, uh, was that process for them? Or if you know, I don't even think they had the property a year before the builder sold it, to be wow. honest. And, okay. and I'm not, I'm not surprised the same thing in my own subdivision. Like the uh-huh. builder came in here, their plan was a two to four year plan, sell the lots, put people in them. Once they got to a point, I don't know if you know this, but sometimes builders will build the model home and then rent it or sell it to an investor who then rents Uh it back to the builder, right? Right. So they can write off the lease. So there's a lot of builders who do that. They're just like- You gotta explain that process. (laughs) Yeah, that's a whole business. So yeah, so so, so explain that to the people. Slow it down and kind of stretch out a little bit. That's a whole business. So Mm -hmm. a builder who's developing land- Uh right? will come in. There's actually layers to this. There are some people who only develop raw land. They will take land that has never been used before. They will put in the pipes, they will get the permits and they will make it. um, They'll get the zoning done so it can become commercial or residential or both. Right. And then they get out, they sell that. They sell those rights to another builder who sometimes comes in and says, okay, well, I just want to build homes and shops. So let me build my homes and shops, but I'm not in the home ownership business, right? So once I sell these lots, I don't want them anymore. Uh-huh. So sometimes they'll get down to the model home, which they've maintained ownership of because they want to be able to show it, right? But then they're like, you know what? This house is built. This house has got all the finishings because the model home always looks better than everything else. But right. we don't want to have to deal with taxes. We don't want to have to deal with utilities. We don't. So let's sell it to an investor, which they do. An investor comes along and they know it's a good deal because they're not going to pay market, but they're not going to pay like low, low, low. But they'll mm-hmm. it's somewhere where they can still profit because when the investor buys it from the builder, then they have the option to sell it when the builder's done using it. But they end up renting it back to the builder in the meantime. So builder builds the model, sells it to an investor. Investor comes in, says, hey, builder, I know you still need to use this model to show these houses, but I'll take over the mortgage, the taxes, right? Uh And you rent it from me at $1,500 a month. 
So now the builder who built the house, who sold the house is now renting it back <laughs> until they it. fully, fully finished the subdivision. Mm-hmm. And then once the subdivision is completely finished, there's no more lots to sell. Now the builder doesn't need their staff on, on site. They don't need realtors on site. So now they sell, the investor sells that home for good and they sell it to somebody who has, you know, two kids and a dog. So okay. everybody's happy. So so you, you said something in there, uh, which was the investor would be able to get the house. So essentially they'll get it at a, at a discount, not a deep yeah, discount. Not but, a deep, uh, but something where there's still profit for them. And you have mm-hmm. to understand that a lot of times when you buy in, like my subdivision, people bought into my subdivision. I'm throwing numbers out there at like, mm-hmm. $200,000, right? Uh-huh. To buy a house. 2020 houses was going were going for a million dollars. In my sub like looking at them, I'm like who who's paying a million dollars for that? That's literally <laughs> what I said. And right, then I told right. my husband like we can't even afford our own house. Right. <laughs> so those were the right. original owners, mm-hmm. right? The original mm-hmm. when there were there's like 400 homes here. When there were like four homes, they paid 200000 right? So the builder Man. who sells to the investor at a, a good price, but still room for them, that investor is going to sell that house two years later at gazillion appreciation. Man. You know what I mean? And so- So how and, do you get on that list? Yeah. That's what I asked. <laughs> That's what I asked. But the realtor right, was right. like, well, we have a list of people we work with. Yeah, but I feel yeah, you, I feel you. no, but it's it's a whole business. Um, I bet you didn't know this. Mm-hmm. We learned this too. Moving into this house, there used to be companies. It didn't survive COVID, but there used to be companies that would purchase the furniture from model homes and sell them. Because okay. because you know the model home is fully furnished, it's, it's staged, it looks beautiful, yeah. right? And it has like some really nice stuff. There was a store that we actually went to to get some stuff for our new house that their whole business model was purchase furniture from the model homes when they're done being the model home and sell them in their store. It's like a a thrift shop for really nice furniture. Let me say, if you guys are loving this episode right now, just go ahead and put like, like this, share this with somebody. This is amazing. I, I, I love everything that, that you show here. So, all right. So this this store that's selling this furniture, is it uh, a much of a discount? What would you say? Yeah, yeah uh, it was a it was it like was good quality stuff. Yeah, good, good quality stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just at a discount because they had only Boy. two couches, not mm-hmm. 20, right? Or, right, right, you right. know, two, two cheap chairs, but they would have dining room tables, chairs, vases, mm-hmm. uh, decorative stuff. Cause you know, model homes all pretty. Exactly. People What's the really- name of that store? Um, it went out of business, but oh, COVID, COVID <laughs> went out. Think about it though. COVID yeah. got a lot of people, but they went out of mm-hmm. business after COVID, but it, that was the hot spot. I was like, there is a business model for this. Man, yep. I mean, maybe a that's glorified else that you thrift, thrift store. Mm-hmm. Goodness, okay, that that definitely blew my mind. Uh, so, um, with these model homes that's coming in, uh, typically, like you said, they'll purchase a home and they'll lease it out for years, depending mm-hmm. on what the plan is for for that for that spot. As they own it, can they do like lines of credit? Can they can they do anything with it? Or is it like, yeah, I mean, it's your house as as a business. Yes. I think you can Mm -hmm. just like a personal 
um, individual who owns a home, obviously, but the mm-hmm. once they sell it to the investor, the investor can leverage it however they like. So you can okay. refinance it, you know, you can do a home equity line of credit. Yeah, I'm sure. But the agreement is wait until we're done. And then you can well, yeah, because they need it, right? right. They can't right. they can't not have a model home. Exactly. <laughs> so exactly. Okay. There are some things pretty clearly understood um mm-hmm. in that relationship. But yeah. Gotcha. All right, cool. So um now going back to life insurance. Um what uh what are some requirements that you need to uh to really get started? I know you have to take the test, but uh, just kind of guide us like through like say if it's a person they've seen a lot of these uh, new uh, people on social media talking about the importance of life insurance and they want to get into it mm-hmm. what do they do right now to start okay so they want to get licensed to sell life insurance so yes. they want to get life insurance okay yes mm-hmm. so each state does have an exam that they'd like you to pass before you start to talk to people about insurance mm-hmm. right. that's really important and then, um, and those tests vary, but a lot of them now, it's just like taking a GRE or MCAT. You go into a facility, you study, you take the test on a computer, and then they spit out a pass, fail, or a grade or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, once you have a license for your state, then you are authorized to sell to someone who lives in your state. But if you want to sell to someone who lives in Hawaii, like I did, um, you have to apply for a license in Hawaii. And then if you have reciprocity, which most most of the time we do, then you only have to pay a fee. Like whatever Hawaii's fee is for Virginia residents, then that's the fee you pay. And the same is for Hawaii residents who want to sell in Virginia. They pay our fee, we pay their fee, and we can sell to people in both states. Gotcha. Explain reciprocity uh, for everybody. Right. Yeah. So reciprocity is just like the exchange of equal and fair treatment. So if if your fee is $10 to do business in Hawaii and I'm charging you that, then you get to charge me that too, but not more than $10 because gotcha. we're, we're going to treat each other equally. So that's what reciprocity means. There yeah. are very few states uh-huh. where you might actually have to take additional education, but that's okay. rare. New York, New York is one of the doozies. Yeah. I have a New York license. I will never let it expire because mm-hmm. it is it is a special state. So New York you do need additional education. Gotcha. Um but some other states it's just paying a fee. No gotcha. classes, gotcha. no extra work. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, good deal. Cuz I'm a I'm a adjuster uh and it's uh, similar to that. And I guess it's it's all insurance so it is what mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so from your experience are there certain states that are more powerful than others when it comes to uh, having reciprocity to just be able to pay for a fee to get in uh, and your uh, world? I don't know. I'll say powerful. I would say more expensive, you know, okay. like some states, the fee is 35 bucks and other states mm-hmm. is two, 300 bucks. So you gotta, my rule of thumb is once I have a license in the state, like I'm about mm-hmm. to write, write 10 plus policies in this state because there's no, I'm not wasting this license. Right? right. Right. And that license is only good for as long as your license is good. So if you renew in your state every two years, then you're going to renew in that state every two years. So it can get gotcha. expensive to gather all these licenses. So you never want to get a license until you need it to do business with someone in that state. Cause you don't want to pay fees for states that you're not getting any money from. 
gotcha. um, but the, the first step is to get licensed in your state and then mm -hmm. you can look into the requirements for other states another thing to mention is although some states won't have fees they may require a background check fingerprints or a little more legwork so do your research because you don't want to be in a position where you didn't do your research and you have a client that wants to move forward and you can't write their policy because you're not licensed uh, in that state. Uh, and you um you have to wait on fingerprints to go all the way to Florida, this true right. story, um, mm -hmm. in order to get licensed in Florida. And I had to get fingerprints in COVID. And I was like, where do I go get fingerprints? Right, like, right. what is going on? So um, you got to know what the requirements are and meet those requirements. And then you can sell the policy for that. Gotcha. State. And how long have you been selling uh, life insurance for? Um, since 2016. 2016. And mm -hmm. um, is it all types of policies of life life insurance that you sell? Or is it like a certain specialty that you have? Yeah. So I'm licensed to actually sell life and health insurance. I just choose not to sell health insurance. Mm -hmm. But I can sell uh, term life insurance, permanent life insurance, disability insurance. Those are the three that I focus on. Gotcha. And what would you say is unique about uh, your approach when it comes to dealing with customers and getting the policy that that best fits them? I'm always going to talk to you about your personal situation. I know it sounds sexy that I use cash in a permanent policy to do real estate investing, but that is not always the policy for everyone. It may not be what you can afford. It may not be what you need. So I'm going to still walk through what your particular needs are. And then we'll talk about what your goals are and make sure that we're providing enough insurance to protect your family, because that is my number one priority. You need to leave enough money that if something happens to you tomorrow, your family's not going to go hungry. They're not, they're going to be able to pay the bills. And so it's always going to be focused on your family first and then whatever else you can do with the policy. So how much coverage should someone get? Um, if, you know, say it's um man head of household, uh, he's uh, the breadwinner, um, how much money should he actually get when it comes to getting a life insurance policy? That's a good question. So I'll give you something to remember. It's called the DIME method, D-I-M-E. D stands for debt. So you're going to add up all your debt, not including your mortgage. So student loans, credit cards, car loans. Then you're going to add that to your income, but we're not just going to do one year. We're going to do five to 10 times your income so that your family can survive five to 10 times after your death. So you're going to take whatever you make, you'll multiply it by five at a minimum, 10 at a max. And then M stands for your mortgage. So if you do own property, you're going to look at the balance due on the mortgage, and that's going to be the number you put for M. And then E stands for education. How much do you want to pay towards your children or godchildren or whoever's children education? You're going to add up all the numbers, D-I-M-E, and your total is going to be your, your possible minimum insurance amount, right? So for some people, that could be a million dollars because if you make $100,000 a year, 10 times your salary is a million and you haven't even included the debt you owe, the mortgage you want to pay off, and the kids you want to pay to go through school. So you may need a lot of insurance when you're young, if you have kids and you have mortgages, but then the older you get, the less likely you need that much insurance. So you may be able to decrease your insurance as you get older, or you may be able to get a smaller policy when you're older. Mm, okay. This is so 
I didn't think about that. So decreasing it um, because of having less debt, um, uh, your mortgage may be paid off and your kids may be grown. Mm -hmm. So you don't need as much. That's interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So a lot of people will get it. Let me explain what term and permanent is because most mm -hmm. people don't know the difference. Uh -huh. So term insurance is temporary. It is the type of insurance you get that covers you for a certain amount of time. And I like to equate it to an apartment lease. It is a contract. Life insurance is a contract. When you sign a term life insurance contract, you're basically saying, I want a five-year, 10-year, 15, 20, or 30-year contract, which means I'm covered for that amount of time. If I die within my term, then you're going to pay my family. If I live, then you're not because I lived, right? right. Mm -hmm. So term insurance is the most cost-effective way to provide a guaranteed legacy to your family because you can get term for pennies on a dollar. You can get a lot of insurance for a little bit amount of money, but that's because- the probability of the company paying is very slim. Only one to 2% of term policies ever get paid. And that's because most people live beyond the term. You get a policy at 30, you only get a 30 year policy. God willing, you make it to 60. Now you have a policy that is expired because term terminates, right? So it expires at the end. And now you're like, hey, I still need insurance because I have kids and I don't want them to have to scramble or host a fish fry to bury me. But do I still need to pay off a mortgage? No, because now I'm in retirement. My house is paid for. So you may get another policy then, or you can get a policy when you're younger. But either way it goes, at some point, you may want to get a permanent policy. So that's the alternative. Permanent insurance doesn't expire. It has many names and there are different types. So there's whole life, there's universal life, there's flex universal life, there's, you know, um, I don't know if I said index universal life. So uh -huh. please know they're not all whole life. A lot of people say whole life insurance because that's the most popular one. It's the oldest one. It came out on the market first. So a lot of people just call permanent insurance, whole life insurance, but they're not all the same. They're kind of like cousins. They're mm -hmm. all related. They all are types of insurance, but they don't work the same way. Gotcha. So um, the main thing they have in common though, is they are a contract. They don't expire. So as a result, once you get a permanent policy, you could die 50 years later, and they're going to pay out. You can die five years later and they're going to pay out. Gotcha. And insurance is cheapest when you're young and healthy. So a million dollar policy that's permanent on a 25 year old is much cheaper than a million dollar policy at 50 years old. Uh -huh. Right. Gotcha. It only makes sense. I feel you. And so while we're talking about insurance, uh, if somebody wanted to book a consultation with you or to get some type of appointment to get more information. Uh, where can I reach you at? You can follow me on Instagram at the purpose of money. And in my bio, you can click on the link for a free consultation, or you can check out my website, thepurposeofmoney.com, where I have a blog, a podcast, and a whole bunch of ways for you to build wealth $1 at a time. Gotcha. I love it. I love it. Awesome. So, um, now we're going into the, the portion of talking about books that you would recommend uh, for individuals that want to either learn about real estate, learn about uh, life insurance, learn about just overall wealth creation. What are three books that you would recommend for 
uh, someone to to read if they want to learn about those things. Rich Dad, Poor Dad is a classic. It's what started me on my journey. And I think you should all read it. Um, then there's another one by David McKnight called The Power um, The Power of... Shoot, give me a second. It's on my bookshelf. Uh, the Power of... The Power of Zero. Uh, I haven't talked about this book in a minute, but The Power of Zero. This talks about how to leverage life insurance to pay zero or almost zero taxes in retirement because life insurance is inherited tax-free. But when you have permanent life insurance, the income that you earn in the policy can also be used as tax-free dollars. And uh, so um, this is a big one, David McKnight. And he has another one called The Velocity Shield. And so this one is more the technical, how to do it. But Velocity Shield is more of a novel that like gives you a real life example of how to leverage it so that you can have life insurance, pay for your retirement, pay for your kid's college, get the, give you the bank that you've always wanted to create. So those are some of the books that I love. And this one is focused on insurance. And then Robert Kiyosaki's focus on building wealth. And those are my favorite books out there. Gotcha. Awesome. And you're saying that you also had a list for people to get on uh, if there's potential deals that's out. So how do they get a, a, to be a part of that list? Yeah. So go to thepurposeandmoney.com and subscribe. Um, my newsletter, I do email out hotel investment opportunities as they come up and other great tips. You can gotcha. find the subscribe link on IG as well. At the gotcha. Purpose of Money. Okay. Awesome. So, okay. So they could find deals. What are some other things that are on your newsletters that you're sending out on your blogs? What I'm doing, things that I've, I'm a big traveler. So I'm constantly sharing my travel experiences and other things. I'm going out of town. By the time this airs, um, I would have been back by then. Um, but a huge traveler. You can also check out my podcast where I share other entrepreneurship stories. I am, I interview a lot of entrepreneurs, nine to fivers, individuals who found ways to build wealth in their life uh, and also create more freedom because I do like to share tips on how you can have a more valuable life. If you want to work, how do you create semi-retirement for yourself and other things like that? Gotcha. All right. And with your travel uh, portion of your uh, blogging and newsletter, do you uh, express how to do it more efficiently and cheaply with like certain deals? I can, like yeah. But okay, my gotcha. big thing is vacation funds. Save for your mm. vacation every time you get paid so you're always prepared to pay for your vacations mm. and use that to your advantage. So like I prioritize vacations, but I don't necessarily need all name brand foods from the grocery store. So right. I pick and choose my battles. Um, I have some nice luxury items that people have gifted me, but I don't go out of my way to buy luxury bags, purses, shoes, anything, right? Okay. I want to be on the beach. So I'm going to prioritize experiences. I'm going to prioritize uh, getaways. So, And I also plan my year. So I plan my vacations in advance so I can take advantage of deals, cheap tickets, shopping on Tuesdays. Um, but really when you plan that far ahead and you know every quarter you want to go somewhere, then you can plan around it, including um, finding the opportunities to get the best prices. So that's what I do. Like my birthday, my 40th is in August and I nice. started planning more than a year ago I told everyone who wanted to go about it 13 months before oh and they had, <laughs> <laughs> they had more than a year to pay for it. So that's my way of making sure I always have a vacation in my plan. 
Gotcha. I love it. I love it. All right. So now we're going into the uh, lightning round. So got four questions for you. All right. So number one, it's interesting that you're talking about experiences because the first question is if you could uh, experience one event in your life again, what would it be? Ooh, one event in my life again, my wedding, Uh. my wedding was amazing. It was a year in the making, but it, it it went by so fast. It went crazy. I, there are definitely moments that I would redo. You know, some people I didn't hug enough and they're no longer here. Some people that I didn't even get to sit down and eat with. I don't even think I ate my own food. Right, right. And I remember at midnight when they brought food to our hotel room to taste, we nibbled at it, but we were leaving the next day for our honeymoon. So we didn't really get to enjoy. And I'm such a food person and everyone is still talking about the food at my wedding that I can't, (laughs) that I can't even remember. Right. Um, right. And, you know, just spending more time, but that's how weddings are, right? They're busy, go by fast, but I would definitely relive that day again. Gotcha. I love it. All right. Second question. If you could post uh, one post, whether it's a reel, a picture or whatever it is, and everybody in the world would see it for 24 hours, what would your post be and what would it be about? Oh, it would be about life insurance and why you need to get covered today. Gotcha. I love it. Nice and simple. All right. Uh, (laughs) Number three, if you could speak to any animal, what animal would it be and why? Mm. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't know if I like animals like that. Oh, gosh. <laughs> you want to speak to none of them? Um, <laughs> ooh, I don't know. I don't have any pets. I used to ride horses because my mom dated somebody who had horses. Mm-hmm. I used to always wonder what they were thinking, but they probably thought we were foolish. Gotcha. Um, okay. I would imagine... I don't know. Sometimes I really do want to be a fly on the wall in the right room because who knows what you would pick up. So maybe that would be interesting to me. But honestly, I don't know. Like, I don't even know if I want to be in the water, if I want to be in the air, or if I want to be on the land. That is a hard question. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So we'll we'll come back to that one. Actually, we'll just so would you no, want to be a fly land? on the wall? I'm gonna be the fly so, on the wall. Yeah. Well, so you so you would want to be able to talk to a fly and ask them a question. This is if you can communicate yeah. with them. So yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Interesting. All right. All right. And the last question. All right. If you had three hours, uh, you and your family, three hours mm-hmm. in any country in the world. All right. Uh, what country would it be and why? That's really hard. Because I've been to 39 countries. Nice. And... I I am a huge advocate of traveling with my kids, even if my husband doesn't always want to. <laughs> and my youngest was born in Dubai. So I've and I've mm. lived abroad too. I haven't just traveled, I've lived abroad. So when we lived in Dubai, my youngest was born. Mm-hmm. So where do we all go that we've been before that we would go back to? Cause I don't, I mean, honestly, I want to go to a new place most of okay. the time. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. That's a hard one, too, because I guess Haiti. I would say Haiti. Gotcha. So and why Haiti? I lived in Haiti for almost two years um, before hmm. I had kids, but was married to my husband. And it always had a special place in my heart. Port-au-Prince is kind of messy and not just physically, but socially. 
But when you go out to the outskirts, Jack Mel is one of my favorite cities. The water runs blue. The people are nice. The beaches are white. It's just beautiful. Haiti's a beautiful, untapped country that has had to deal with so much historical uh-huh. depression and injustice that it just saddens my heart. So I know they had a rough start ever since independence. Yeah, yeah They've been absolutely. struggling. They've been struggling straight ever up, since. But up. I, you know, my husband's family's from there and I one day I want us all to go there uh-huh. and uh-huh. Um, see beautiful Haiti for ourselves. But gotcha. unfortunately, that's not possible right now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, It's it's been, it's been rough. Uh, especially well, it's it's always been there's had uh different levels of roughness but uh for example my so my dad passed away recently uh and i wanted to go to the funeral but it was just one of those situations to where my family's like don't go it is not safe to go to the funeral so i had to watch it like on a live stream but it was just one of those things to where it's like thing like is it really that bad and also has it been worse than what I thought it was because I always went with family mm-hmm. and whenever we'll go we have a driver uh, we have this like everything is kind of pre-planned so would it be mm-hmm. a different experience if I would have just gone to Haiti it's like all right I'm here yeah is it dangerous you know I, I don't recommend tourists just show up please <laughs> I'm telling you don't do that gotcha. no it's not the same and I think that it's dangerous to do that now, even to visit your own family. I'm just going to mm-hmm. say that. I'm not going to go into a long discussion about it, but I know mm-hmm. from personal experience that it can be dangerous just to visit your own family because some people are desperate and they will take advantage of the fact that you're blonde, you're coming back, you're the American mm-hmm. who made mm-hmm. it, and they will use that opportunity to um, take advantage. And it's, I'm, I'm not saying this happens all the time, right. Mm-hmm. But, you know, people do get kidnapped in Haiti and sometimes it's by their own family members. So mm-hmm. that's real. That's a reality right. that the country is facing. Ransom is a mm-hmm. way of life for some. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, gotcha. Very unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. It is. Um, but that's so. the place that if I could, I would. And we I would show my kids how beautiful their family's history is. Gotcha. Amazing. And so uh, thank you so much for doing this podcast. Uh, I learned a ton. Uh, there are several moments where I was like, oh, wait, hold on. You blew my mind. My mind is like just continuously blown. Uh, it's kind of slap, sputter all over the place right now. But uh, for anyone that wants to really get a hold of you and really is like want to learn more about what you're doing, like let them know like your podcast, your, your website, like everything, like where, where can they find all your stuff? Yeah, check me out at thepurposeofmoney.com on Instagram at the purpose of money. Sign up for a free consultation. Check out my course, the purpose of money maximizer.com. And just let me know how I can help. Gotcha. I love it. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you. Welcome. Thanks. Awesome. Thank you for listening to the Your First Steps podcast. Let us know what you thought about this episode by leaving a review. And don't forget to subscribe.